0: This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. In case you have not heard this news, a parole hearing has been set for March 2017 for Paul Bernardo. Yeah, Paul Bernardo. What has the reaction been from the Mahaffian French families? And what is the chance of all of this happening? Uh, We're speaking specifically about day parole. But uh, many of us thought when he was deemed a dangerous offender that all of this was impossible. Uh, uh, Tim Danson is with us now. Hello, Tim. How are you today? Thank you. Surprised to hear this news, Tim?
1: Um, no, I'm not surprised. I mean, we know in law that all offenders are entitled to uh, parole uh, considerations. Um, doesn't mean they're going to get it. And my own view is is that Paul Bernardo has no chance of getting any form of uh, parole now or, or for the rest of his life. But he is eligible for it. And it doesn't surprise me because, um, I mean, he's sitting in a jail cell you know, in protective custody 23 of 24 hours a day. Um, You know, this kind of breaks up the monotony of his day, and so the families were aware of this. And, in fact, over 20 years ago, uh, in anticipation of this day, um, while everything was fresh in our mind, I put together uh, a significant um, multi-volume brief for the parole board um, so that, you know, the best evidence that we thought uh, that we could put forward would be before the parole board uh, that would militate strongly against any kind of relief. So. They, they knew this day would come. We've actually had some previous false alarms, um, and this one coming up in March uh, may be another one, but that's, that, that's what we're told uh, is the target date for his parole hearing. Um, and we can't take anything for granted, notwithstanding I'm confident that he'll never get parole. Um, we will be vigilant. We're preparing the victim impact statements. And unfortunately for the families, even though they knew this day would come, it's, it's, it's just uh, gut-wrenching. Uh, for
0: them hmm. Where do I start here? So you were actually in your team preparing for this way back when in, in anticipation of all of this Yeah, when we um, is that uh, common Tim?
1: I, I don't know to be honest with you if it's common it was something that uh, um, You know that uh, you know I've been doing this for 36 years and, and have some experience in it although even 20 you know years ago uh, after Bernardo's conviction um you know, we just knew that uh, he was entitled to uh, parole considerations. Uh, most people think it's 25 years, uh, but um, actually what the law is is that three years before your, um, you know, your full parole eligibility, which for Bernardo was February 17, 2018, three years before that you're eligible to apply for day parole. So, that's, so he's, been, he's been entitled to this since February of 2015, but he keeps putting it off. I suspect it's because he knows his case management team won't support him and his chances are somewhere between zero and nil. But um, uh, but for whatever reason, I you know, I understood the magnitude of this and this particular offender. And uh, while I always hoped that I would live a long time, and I'm glad I'm still around, um, uh, while things were very fresh in our mind, we just thought that it was a good idea to put this brief together, um, which we submitted, as I say, some 20-plus years ago to the hmm. roll board. So wow. We're 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 lucky because if I had to remember all the details of of a couple decades ago, um, there may be some failures there. Mm. So uh, we're in good shape to respond to this. Uh, but it's 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 hard to believe that uh, a couple decades have gone by, and um, and that uh, you know that Paul Bernardo thinks that he's uh, in, entitled to some kind of re- release. But
0: now I mean, we all he's he's deemed a dangerous offender. Uh, I I thought that took care of all of this. What does that mean?
1: Well, I mean, it's, that's a very good point that you make, and it's, it's one of, 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 of great significance to us. First of all, when you're, you know, yes, he was given a life sentence for the, for the murders, but he was also designated a dangerous offender. And under the law, um, in order for it to be constitutional, because once you're de- declared a dangerous offender, you're in jail in, in, for an indefinite period of time so to maintain its constitutional validity he was entitled to a review after seven years and then every two years he's entitled to a review that never occurred because of his life sentence but my view is on behalf of the families is that the uh... the, the considerations to be relieved from the dangerous offender designation is significantly different than your general uh... pro eligibility eligibility considerations. so uh... it you know whether it's a bifurcated proceeding or or whatever because both are heard by the parole board um, my view is that before paul bernardo is entitled to any consideration for parole he has to advance um, a compelling case based on uh... compelling evidence and medical evidence that would displace the evidence that um, that was presented in court twenty plus years ago that uh, resulted in his dangerous offender designation and i also believe that um any evidence that Paul Bernardo puts forward um, for uh, to deal with his dangerous offender designation and his parole eligibility must be public. And I, you, you would think, you know, you know that intuitively that of course it's going to be uh, public because you know we have an open court uh, justice system. But unfortunately, when you get to the parole stage of the of, of the proceedings, um, uh, the the privacy legislation kicks in. And we're not entitled to see any of this. The only evidence we get to see is whatever the parole board puts in their decision. And the families intend to challenge that. And indeed, um, the, um, the, the Sweet family um, and the Toronto Police Association, Michael Sweet was a mm-hmm. police officer murdered um, uh, by, by, by Craig Monroe some 37 years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they already have an application in, in the federal court, which we'll probably join with them, Um, uh, to deal with these privacy issues, because it's absurd that someone like Paul Bernardo, who is seeking a public remedy, which is to be released, uh, relieved from his life sentence and put in in, in, and be be paroled into the public, that's about as public as you can get, and the public has a right to know all the evidence um, that he relies upon. So that's going to be an issue for us, too. We think this has to be a transparent process, and in any event, even if there was a privacy interest, the public interest must trump uh, any rights that Paul Bernardo has.
0: So even though he was deemed a dangerous offender way back when, he still has certain rights that have to be exercised in order to make this constitutionally sound.
1: That's right. I mean, the Supreme Court of Canada says you can't just uh, throw away the key and put right. someone in forever. But, right. uh, but, so we will have a due process uh, uh, system and, and so he will be testing that now, but um, uh, look, at this guy is, is the worst of the worst um, sexual sadist psychopaths uh, there's no cure for this kind of psychopathy. Um, I don't, I'd don't. i be shocked, um, although I have to concede I've been shocked uh, from time to time in my 36 years of practicing law, but I would still be shocked if any credible doctor would come forward and say that Paul Bernardo's rehabilitated and does not represent a threat to public safety. We just need to go back a couple years ago. Remember that Amazon story where he did a fictional
0: account? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: And I mean, you know what he was, what what his fictional mind was doing while he was in jail was coming up with these grotesque uh, acts of violence, fictional or not. And um, hmm. he wasn't writing poetry about flowers and, and, and magic and, and you know and, yeah. and, and, and stars and that. So the guy is a is um, I think is very very dangerous. He is a psychopath. He is a sexual sadist. And um, and I'm confident, uh, for all the right reasons, um, that uh, he will not meet any. Criteria for uh, release into the into the community, and I don't think the public needs to be concerned about that. Um, But uh, nevertheless, it's got to bother a lot of people as it bothers us that Mm. uh, this is even happening.
0: Oh, uh, absolutely so, and and I'm getting that through uh, what I'm hearing from listeners. Uh, How would Bernardo be preparing for this?
1: Um, You know, that's you know, he 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 obviously would. try to put a case forward that he's been involved in, in 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 various programs in the institution um, that he has uh... you know rehabilitated himself that uh... uh... he, he definitely needs to get the support of his case management team um, uh... to support some kind of 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 release and 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 that starts with you know uh, escorted temporary absences and things of that nature Um but he also has to show genuine remorse and he's never demonstrated that um and uh, he I'm sure to this day he still blames carl homoka for the murders and um I don't think he's capable of taking responsibility for his own actions and that's critical and 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 it can't be just lip service either it has to be heartfelt and genuine but maybe you know one thing about psychopaths is that they are very bright and they're very manipulative and conniving uh, and, um, and very manipulative, and so, you know, he may try to put a package together knowing what the pro board wants to hear, mm-hmm. and he'll try and sell it, but, uh, you know, but uh, it won't work. I'm, I'm confident of that.
0: What does this all mean for the French and families? What do they have to go through with all of this, and how are they doing through this process?
1: Well, it's, it, as I said, it, it really is uh, gut-wrenching for them. It's just, uh, and for me to deal with them on this, it's, it's painful um they know that they have to uh, respond they know they have to you know be there for their daughters um they will prepare their victim impact statements uh they will you know be present at the parole hearing and therefore be in the same room as the person who murdered their daughters uh, all of that is 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 gut wrenching um and very very difficult for them but you know when you when they see that they're doing this for their daughter and their their, their daughters and their memories they they do gather up the strength. Um, you know, one of the things that's uniquely uh, difficult for all of them, but I think you know, I know uh, Debbie Mahaffey has particularly expressed this: is that um, to 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 communicate the impact that this has on you and what it's been like over the last number of decades is a, is as personal as you can imagine. And and you know, one of the things that we enjoy in a democratic society is our right to privacy, uh, and to share these type of Deeply you know personal views um, which which you know torture you emotionally um, to be have to say that in public is very, very tough and uh, and I know they 're struggling with with that dichotomy between the need to protect themselves emotionally to protect their personal privacy, but the need to participate in the justice system to to make sure that justice continues to be done, uh, and in the end, they will come forward, but it is uh, it is not easy and um,
0: And you have to think, Tim, at, you know, doing, uh, uh, compiling some sort of impact statement at that time is one thing. But now to do it at this point, after they've been without their loved ones for so long, I I mean, this would be almost a completely different impact statement, wouldn't it? it,
1: it, Well, it's a very uh, good observation. That's exactly right. Um, uh, You know, with the passage of time, you're you're now kind of reliving the past.
0: Mm -hmm. uh, What would have been?
1: Well, exactly. And uh, and they've had so many more experiences, obviously, in the last, you know, number of decades. And, and to reflect on the fact that they, they didn't see their daughters married, they didn't yeah. walk down the aisle, they didn't go to their graduations, uh, um, you know, they're not having grandchildren, um, you know, mm. all of this stuff just, just is, 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 I can't think of a better word than, than gut-wrenching, because that's just what it is. And it's, um, it's, you know, they've got to relive something that uh, they'd rather not relive. Um, but nevertheless, um, uh, the power of ensuring that uh, that uh, they're protecting uh, their daughters still uh, by making sure that Paul Bernardo doesn't get out uh, will trump all of that. But it will still be, uh, um, you know, a, a difficult process for them.
0: And have to balance that with the fact that this is probably what a psychopath wants, isn't it?
1: Well, that's right. And 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 and. Remember the way the law works is that even though he gets his parole hearing and and, and as I say I'm confident that he, his, his application will be denied, he gets the he gets to do this every year or two years for the rest of his life. So you know it, it's um, you know we've been lobbying for changes so that at least uh, um, you know every five years as opposed to every one or two years. But um, very very difficult um, you know for the families. Uh, but um, you know that's our. You know, that's our justice system, and it's 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 um, you know for for many offenders, you know who who don't have fixed sentence, the parole system is a good system. But when you're dealing with 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 people who have been convicted of, of of this kind of or any kind of murder, but this kind of sadistic, brutal, sexual, um, deviant type of murders, um, to think that they're eligible, you you know, in my own view, I think we maybe make an exception because I don't think that uh, we should be spending taxpayers. Uh, mm money on, on, I'm not saying you don't have any parole, but, mm-hmm. but once you have your hearing to do it every year, two years, that just seems to be um, uh, unnecessary.
0: Tim, please pass on our strength to the French and Mahaffey families. Uh, we support them in any way that we can, and good luck with this, Tim.
1: Great. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Listening to the Scott Thompson Show weekdays from noon to three on AM nine hundred
0: CHL. Paul Bernardo will uh, be granted a parole hearing for day parole March twenty seventeen. Uh, we've just spoke with uh, Tim Danson, lawyer for uh, the Mohaffy and French families. Uh, he does not believe that this will happen, but uh, as being deemed a dangerous offender, we all thought that perhaps this day never came. No, that's not the case. In order for this to happen. Uh, Even being a deemed a dangerous offender, that just means when the parole uh, hearings do come, that they carry more weight. Uh, But that being said, the family still has to go through this process, which is terrible. It's it's just absolutely terrible when you think about it. Uh, William tweets, uh, good, uh, I can't say that word, luck. Um, Thomas tweets, it should say funeral instead of parole. Uh, feel free to offer your opinion. You can send us a note at Scott Thompson at 900chml.com. Phone lines always open, 905-645-3221, star 9900 on your cell. We're going to talk to a registered psychologist coming up moments from now and 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 talk about what the families do go through in a scenario like this and, and why should they have to. Uh, as I mentioned, phone lines are open. Roy's on the line. Roy, go ahead. What are your thoughts?
2: Um, I just wanted to say that I knew both, and Carla on a personal level. I grew up in Port Dalhousie and lived there when all this was going on, Mm. first off. Secondly, uh, I listened to some of the comments made, uh, and there was a suggestion that uh, Paul is a psychopath and is in control and needs to be in control. Anyone who's actually looked at the evidence of the case knows that that's not factually correct, He was not in control. Hamoka controlled everything. She made the deal with the prosecutor. After the prosecutors got the tapes and looked at the tapes, they realized they made the deal with the wrong person. She's walking the streets with no supervision, no nothing. Well, he's sitting in jail, and it's easy to get angry at this and want blood for blood, but... At the end of the day... So
0: what are you saying, Roy? Are you saying that one, the other one should be out and the other one should be in? I don't think the face of the earth is a place for either one of them.
2: I, I agree with you. I'm saying both of them should be in. But if you had to pick the lesser of the two evils, Paul is actually the lesser of the two evils. But she made the deal before he did, and she's walking the streets unsupervised.
0: From what I so, heard, from what I've, heard, from really what i from, from what I've heard, from what I've heard of these two tapes, are um, these tapes? I don't think there is a lesser of two evils. But I see your point, Roy. She should be right beside him, and I agree with that. Uh, thanks for the call. What was, what were they like when they were, when you knew them? Paul was very quiet,
2: resigned, and Carla was always the one in control in the relationship.
0: So uh, he was quiet. What was she like?
2: She, she was very aggressive. Uh, I witnessed her hit him several times and be physically violent with him several times. And I'd actually counseled him to leave her.
0: Have you spoke with him at all during any of this period? Not since the trial. And so you're confident that he wa- he, he she was the ringleader, he was the, uh, he followed.
2: Absolutely. And as far as the other 14 rapes, At no time did any police investigators sit down with him and ask for any details of the crime. They just wanted to close a bunch of cold cases and got him to confess and say, oh, yeah, I'm the Scarborough Rapist. He was nowhere near Scarborough when they took place. He was in Port Dalhousie.
0: Then why does he confess?
2: Because he got a deal that he got a private cell and some other benefits while he was in jail. He knew he was going, and he wanted to get the best, living situation he could for himself so they offered him some things and and said look, cop to these 14 cases so we can close the files and this is what we'll give you in exchange
0: Thanks for the call Roy, much appreciated No problem All right. Uh, Again, you'll have a hard time uh, selling any sympathy for that man or her for that matter Uh, Dale, what are your thoughts on all this?
3: Um, I am Dale Edwards 25 years ago my parents were murdered in Woodburn, just up up the hill. Um, the uh, convicted name is George Lovey. He received uh, two life sentences plus another life sentence for trying to murder my sister. She, uh, we are so blessed that she did escape. Um, so 25 years later, we, on the 16th of November, will be heading up to uh, minimum security in Gravenhurst to the prison to um, try to... Keep him from getting dappled. We went just last year. Uh, he decided he wanted to, to get some, uh, see what um, huh, what it was like up in Peterborough, and. Um, uh, can't, I'm sorry, I can't think of the other, other town that he wanted to go to, to check out what it was going to be like up there for day parole. Well, you went up, uh, most of our family members, we presented victim impact statements, which is absolutely a horrific thing to have to do, both to write them and to present them, and to then come down after you've presented them. Um, and uh, so we, two hours, we presented our statements, and then it was his time to be interviewed by the parole board. We are terrified of this man. He showed no remorse. He's done absolutely nothing. He's taken no courses. You can get uh, a BA while you're in there. He's taken no courses to benefit himself. Um so they, they he raped my sister about um twenty uh thirty thirty days before the murders. Um I kept her at knife point for six hours, showed her the FAC, showed her the bullets, told her what he was gonna do to her. Um he doesn't believe he raped her. He, he doesn't believe that was rape, although when the parole board asked him um, if he did those things to someone else, would it be rape? Well, yeah, he guessed it probably would. So most of our victim impacts still uh, indicate how fearful we are of him. That we, we know he hasn't changed. And uh, when they asked him, do most of the uh, victim impact statements indicate how fearful they are of you? Do, you, do the Edwards family have any reason to be fearful of you. He hesitated. And then he said, I don't think so. Wow. So so this is what we're dealing with. 25 years later, we've, we've gone to, um, and how
0: often do you have to do this?
3: Whenever he wants, whenever he wants, because he's passed his, uh, his, um,
0: 25 years, 25 25 years,
3: whenever he wants, he can say, well, I think I'd like to, do this or i think i'd like to do that oh sudbury that's where he wants to go he wants to go check out uh, check out sudbury unescorted unescorted he he was working um in the town of gravenhurst um without escort and when the Pearl board last year decided that he was a high risk to the edwards family they, they pulled that so he's no longer doing that uh, he has applied to do it again um for, there's ETAs, escorted temporary absences, and UTA, unescorted temporary absences. He wants unescorted temporary absences to go up to Sudbury. At that rate, he would leave the prison by himself, get his transportation up to Sudbury, be up there at a halfway house, uh, be monitored up there, and then then come home.
0: How difficult is this for your family?
3: Unbelievable. Unbelievable. My brother has uh, gone to the States, um, my baby sister, there's 11 years between she and I, who, uh, uh, she had dated him and realized it wasn't, it wasn't right, that, you know, there was something wrong. He said to her, uh, if you, if you, uh, and I and your parents were in a boat and the boat started to sink, who would, who would you want to save? Who would you try to save? And she said, that's not, not good. So she broke off the relationship. He stalked her. He followed her. He raped her. He, uh waited till she came out of her apartment on march 21st 1991 followed her across the street to my parents home he blew up their home he stabbed my dad five times in the heart he shot my mother dead through a door and um fought with michelle and as he studied my dad he's saying to my dad do you like me now do you like me now and then he turned to michelle and he said "Uh, see what you made me do he blames her for charging him with sexual assault because he doesn't believe he ever did that. What we, what you know how hard it is to sit down and write a victim impact statement to tell parole board members, convince them what his character is. We had the the warden responsible for letting him out into society to work in Gravenhurst. We sent letters, letters letters say, don't do it. This is what this guy's like. He hasn't changed. He, he held the Hamilton, or the, the Federal Court, at bay for five days while well, he refused to come back to finish his testimony from the Crown Attorney. He, he's the only person in Canada who had done that. And then when he gets into a situation in Gravenhurst at Beaver Creek Institution, during his first uh, hearing, um, he did the same thing. He listened to all the victim impact statements. Then we took a break. He decided he didn't want to come back. Well, he didn't want to be be, uh, interviewed by the parole board. So he just said, "Mm, I'm withdrawing my application. We had gone through two hours of hell presenting these. You go through hell when you write it because you have to review everything in your brain. Then you put in, well, what's happened since... Since the last time, you know, we, we wrote one of these, and then finally you get it down on paper, you send it off to Victim Services. The, this one, I, he was he stabbing, stabbing my dad. My dad screams like an animal, and he says, "You bastard! You bastard! You leave my family alone!" Victim Services, well, no, it was the parole board sent it back to me. Said you have to amend this. Because you said you bastard, you bastard. I said that's a quote. Doesn't matter. You bastard, you bastard. You don't see. You don't want to rile him when he when you're in the same room with him. So I had to take out you bastard, you bastard, and then in, in one part of my victim impact statement when I called him a monster, well, that's no good either.
0: You had to take that out.
3: Yeah, yeah. And then I had to resubmit it.
0: Dale, thank you for uh, sharing your story. I'm going to put you all on hold because we have to bring on our guest, uh, Doctor Richard or, uh, Richard Amaril. Who is a uh, registered psychologist he is joining us now uh, good afternoon Richard how are you today
4: hey good afternoon Scott uh, oh, Richard Dales. thank you for sharing that story you
0: you're you're hearing the story of Dale and of course uh, we started talking about this in regard to uh, the Paul Bernardo trailer or, or uh, trial or uh, parole trial w- What, uh, or hearing rather I should say uh, how, do they, how can they expect these families to do this time and time and time again?
4: You're right. It is difficult. Um, you know, I, I know that uh, a few weeks ago, uh, we, Scott, we were having a conversation on post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm-hmm. You know, amongst and the, the presence of PTSD amongst jurors. And, you know, after hearing uh, Dale, and thank you again for sharing your story, Dale. But after hearing her experiences here... Um, I, it's very logical, very reasonable to think, that families get re-traumatized every time they do this. Um, they're putting, you know, their own mental health gets compromised just a little bit, or compromised quite a bit, I, I should say, um, whenever they do this kind of service for society, where they um, help out with the justice system. But uh, I can't imagine just how difficult it must be.
0: You know, and you bring up a valid point, Richard. I mean, you're doing your duty. You're doing your duty for your family member. You're doing your duty for your daughter, your son, whatever. Uh, How are you supposed to heal when you're constantly fighting this battle?
4: Well, that's a great question, and perhaps, you know, Dale can help with that, you know, in terms of her journey uh, at healing. But I guess one of the thoughts I had was that, you know, sometimes... It's the perspective that by sharing your story again, by sharing your experiences again, you are helping the millions of families, you know, you're helping the rest of society to be a little bit safer. So um, Mm. what that that person in sharing their story and their victim impact statement is doing an incredible duty uh, in helping out for the welfare of others. And I think sometimes having that perspective can be quite healing therapeutic. Hmm. I'm assuming. Okay. Because
0: it just simply because you're you're paying it forward in some way. But you know what I'm finding traumatic here, it must be incredibly traumatic, is when, when we're talking to Tim Danson, lawyer for the Mahafi and French family, um, you know, they're going through impact statements that they wrote however many years ago and yeah. then now they're going to read more impact statements on how life has been without their daughters for the past however many years uh, so i mean you know it's it's one thing to do an impact statement at the time of the crime but then to have to do it however many years later after you've lived your life not seeing how your child grew up i mean that's that's oh. that's, that's another crime that's another it's being victimized yeah. again
4: that's right. That's absolutely right. You know, and you talk about this this piece of the re-traumatization. Um, so be- when I got asked to come on your show today, before your producer called me, I was just about to go into a counseling session with a client. And I, I was just, uh, at 12 o'clock, I finished my session with her, and it's a 20-something girl from the GTA. And um, I was just, we got into the conversation just as we were closing up the session, and I said, yeah, I'm going to... Um, speak on this on the the Paul Bernardo uh, case on the radio and she said I know I heard about it and she uh, said this she says this is the worst nightmare happening to all the women in Toronto Hmm. the worst nightmare is happening to all women in tomorrow in Toronto and I guess what stood out for me here is that this was a young girl who um was either not born yet when Paul Bernardo was arrested or was born just before the, but her, uh, his arrest. And, you know, there is the, what sometimes we forget is that, you know, a lot of people were traumatized when hearing about the crimes. And this memory hmm. that this girl's mother had about that, that crime and that event um, is something she's shared with her daughter. And my client and her friends have talked about this Paul Bernardo and Carla, um, Carla Homolka. And, um, and you know, and they were just children or some weren't even born yet when this was happening. So this just sort of speaks to how, um, the you know, this memory, this tragedy, this story continues um, many years after the person has been arrested.
0: Hmm. Uh... Do you you see um, – you know, we understand that there's – and I know you're not a lawyer. We understand that, you know, uh, in order for things like dangerous offender uh, status to to stick, there has to be constitutional rights there. And and I guess the person who's committed the crime has rights and they have to be fulfilled. That being said – Should we be doing this at the expense of the families again? I mean, we have to try to balance the the scales of justice here, but it just seems so wrong to have to put them through this.
4: Yeah, I agree. And, and, you know, I'm hoping that, you know, um, that, you know, over time, perhaps legislation will change, you know, perhaps, um, you know, things will, um, legislation will change, policies will change so that the families don't have to be re-victimized or re-traumatized. Um, but you know, one of the you know one of the things I think it does though is that it, it provides again uh, the voice you know a very real voice mm. um, to those who cannot speak. Yeah. And I think it's important that that voice get heard. Um, and it requires tremendous courage and tremendous strength to share that voice. But it just Speaks to hey yeah perhaps the offender as a human being in our society uh, perhaps the offender does have some rights but you know so do those who were victimized and um, and and the right that they have is they have the right to share their story and to tell their story but I think what we sometimes don't always understand is how difficult it is to to do that, to share
0: the story. Dr. Richard Amaral has been with us, registered psychologist. Richard, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Hey, thank you, Scott. All right, thank you. Uh, Let's bring Dale back on uh, quickly. Dale, are you still there? Yes, I am. How do you heal when you have to, you know, do the right thing, when you have to defend your family member? How do you how do you...
3: Yeah, we're we're not just defending Michelle um because because he he uh, he he kept going that day because she had escaped and he wasn't finished his job. He wanted her to. Um so how do how do we cope? Well, I've been through about 12 psychologists, psychiatrists um and counselors. Um I had to leave them through no fault of my own. I've now been with an amazing uh, psychologist since 2007 Um, she is my angel on earth Uh, I see her every two weeks I see a psychiatrist every three months Um, I have been diagnosed with post-traumatic stress my brother has been diagnosed with post-traumatic stress Um, my sister um, she had the choice she could either either um, stay and fear for her life um, every day or uh, she could take the uh, victim, what do you call that, the, the, uh, where they take you, remove your name. Identity,
0: and, yeah, yeah. Change your identity.
3: Yes, and um, move away. But that would mean that my sister, uh, my older sister here is, is in Hamilton. I am in Hamilton. Um, she would have to completely deny, uh, as well as her husband, her, her identity, um, any people she knew, her hmm. job. Everything would have to be changed. She chose to move. Um, so consequently, we don't even get to be close as a family. It splits your family even, up. Because we were all divided. My, yeah. like, so, so how do you, how do you cope? Um, it's hard. It's hard. I, I, I need help. Um, my, my older sister, she is uh, amazing. She's a rock. She's a different personality than what I am. But she, too. like It's things like crowds. You know, you, you don't want to be stuck stuck in a crowd because you, you get panic attacks. And, hmm. and uh, what, what he was saying about um, it, it, the stories need to be heard. Well, who hears them? That, that's, that's the point. My sister was a member of Caveat for some time. Citizens Against Violence everywhere advocating its termination. Um, she was with them for years and years. Has it done much? <laughs> yeah, it helped a little bit, but... <sighs> But but who who's hearing this? We go, we go up to the to to see the, uh, the parole board and, and him at a hearing, and and we go through hell for two months. One month before and one month coming coming trying to get back to normal afterwards, whatever our normal is. And who hears that?
0: Dale, heard when
3: our impact statement, no, nobody but the parole board, wardens are, are responsible for. For making decisions for him, Pro is responsible. They don't know him.
0: When do you go up next? You know.
3: We go up the sixteenth of November. Our, our victim impact statements are in. Do
0: you want to come um, back on the air and keep hammering it on the air?
3: I I, w- I would like that. I just
0: you're more than welcome.
3: People don't.
0: We'll people spread the word.
3: Finish. People people don't know, and and who do you tell? You tell the Pro Board. Well, you know, that it, it helps the t- at the time, it helps the situation. Maybe we can keep him in there, Well, maybe we can keep him from getting on un- any un- un- unscorted temporary absences. And that, the thing is, the system doesn't help us either, because at the last hearing last year, they wanted him to take, um, uh, be assessed to see if he, he doesn't want to be called a sexual offender. Mm-hmm. Well, he raped my sister. I think he is. But he doesn't want to be labeled that. So they told him he had to be assessed to see if he needed to take a sexual offender course, um, before he could really apply or get anything, uh, get, it, get any uh, uh, benefits. And um, then the correctional um, services went and changed. Like, we, we were getting information about what courses he took and what they included. They completely changed the whole thing, and, and they made it so that we, we can't figure out what he took. He took one mm. course. What did it include? We don't know. It, they called it a multi-targeted something because uh, because the, uh, violence and um, aggression. And so the, Dale, uh,
0: you have you have another appointment coming up in the middle of November. I'm going to because we have to move on to the news now. I'm going to put you on hold. My producer will pick up the phone. He'll get the pertinent information, and we will talk to you before you head up again and uh, and tell the story again.
3: Well, I, I hope I hope some people are are maybe hearing um the 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 hidden life
0: hang on a sec okay dale okay thanks and thank you very much for telling your story and people are listening
1: you're very welcome
0: hang on You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. The city of Hamilton has fixed some issues involving Tim Horton's field as a result of a new safety study. Uh, Remember, this all started with uh, some hanging speakers that uh, had not been installed correctly. And, of course, we all know what happened after that. Uh, And, of course... uh, troubles with uh, the power uh, in last week's game. To talk more about all of this, Rom D'Angelo is with us, Director of Facilities with the City of Hamilton, and he is with us now. Hello, Rom. How are you today? Not too bad, Scott. How are you? Good. Thanks for taking the time to join us. So what exactly did happen during the TICAT game?
5: Well, it didn't happen during the TICAT game. It happened uh, last Wednesday. Um, there was uh, an odor a smoky, uh, um, burning uh, smell and uh, whining, uh, whistling sound out of our transformer room. And uh, when staff went in to see it, um, you know, it was a bit smoky, and uh, we shut it down. And uh, further investigation, uh, we, we knew we needed to bring some generators in order to meet uh, the uh, electrical capacity for the Friday's game. So it happened on uh, Wednesday, not uh, during the game.
0: So you had plenty of time to react for this then?
5: Uh, Yes, we did. Uh, I mean, our staff were scrambling. We had to make a a number of calls uh, through Wednesday and Thursday in order to get the the two Transformers in to meet the capacities for uh, uh, a game day situation. And sure enough, uh, my staff pulled through and uh, had two Transformers delivered on uh, late Thursday, and we connected it, patched it into the uh, stadium, and... uh, uh, we were ready to go for game day on Friday.
0: How difficult is that, Rom, to uh, wheel in the generators and plug them into the stadium? Is that difficult? How, how, how hard is that?
5: Well, it's, it is challenging. I mean, first of all, we needed to get a, um, an electrical engineer to look at the system and to see how we could patch it in. We had to find uh, suitable space for the generators because they were on two flatbeds. Uh, so it was challenging. We had to make a number of calls in order to secure the generators. It's not an easy feat. Uh, but again, my staff pulled through and uh, were able to secure two uh, generators on two flatbeds, and we rolled them in uh, late Thursday, and uh, we had the electricians uh, patch it into the uh, main system.
0: And so the, the transformer that you had problems with, it is on, it's actually on site at the stadium?
5: The Transformers, uh, yes, it is. Uh, we have trans- two Transformers that operate that whole stadium, uh, that feed into that stadium. Uh, we have Siemens, uh, the manufacturer of the Transformers. They're coming in tonight, and they're going to do an extensive test on the, uh, both Transformers, especially the Transformer that failed on us. It's going to probably take a good 8 to 10 hours uh, to do this testing, and that will be done through
0: the uh, overnight. And no idea at this point what, what caused this or how it happened?
5: Until um, I'll probably know, I'll, I'll have a better idea tomorrow morning, once um, our uh, manufacturer's in there to to um, inspect and uh, investigate the situation, I'll have a better idea tomorrow. Uh,
0: and did this uh, situation with the Transformer cause any other issues within the stadium? Uh, you guys sound like you found it pretty quick and, and got it under control. It sounds like it could have been a lot worse.
5: Well, it could have been a lot worse if it happened on Friday, and in order to scramble and, and get the uh, the redundant power that we needed, um, I mean, we could have ran the game on the one transformer that was left, uh, but um, we wanted to make sure we had a fail-safe situation, and we brought in the redundancy, of the uh, generators, um, because you just never know if uh, that one transformer would be able to keep up with the uh, full load. Um, so it was it was in. in it was a due diligence on our part to ensure that we brought the, uh, the redundancy in.
0: Now, when you were operating it during the game on Friday, was that on that transformer, or was that all shut down and you were relying solely on the, uh, the generators that were in?
5: Uh, we were relying on the whole system, the, right. trans- the transformer that was right. active as well as the generator.
0: Oh, so, the, so the, the one that was active was still being used during the game then? Yes. It oh. Was. Okay. Cool. Uh, so uh, you don't know at this point what caused it. Uh, would it be? Do you think it's something in? You know, I noticed you had said in the in the spec that uh, you categorized some of the deficiencies with the stadium as sloppy workmanship. Any idea if that was the the what happened here? Was it an equipment failure? Was it the way it was installed? Any way of telling it at this point, Rom?
5: Um, right now. Um as part of our review, uh, our inspections, uh, the review that we've done over the last few, uh, few months was uh, really um, equipment fixtures overhead from a safety perspective. Right. Um, we really didn't target the transformers. We never thought that we had an issue with the transformers. Right. Um, now, in hindsight, we need to look at the transformers and to see if, uh, one, it's a manufacturer defect or if it was an installation issue.
0: So, with this transformer, is it is this a, is this a stadium-owned piece of equipment? Is this a city-owned piece of equipment?
5: It's part of the stadium, and it was yeah. transferred to us as part of uh, the stadium when it came into our hands a year ago, May, as a substantial completion. So, it is part of the system.
0: Uh, so, who will end up paying for the the fix for all this, Ron? Right now, um, we're looking at
5: making the fix. Um, we're looking at the warranties. I know we do have a 10-year warranty for parts and labor, mm-hmm. um, so we still need to sort that piece out. At the end of the day, it's not going to affect the, uh, the taxpayer because it's going to be under the warranty or we're going to go after uh, Infrastructure Ontario or the general contractor as a latent defect.
0: Ram, you were talking about how you guys conducted a review after the situation with the speakers. Where did that go? I understand there was some missing bolts around the scoreboard. What can you tell us about all of that?
5: Yeah, um, so when the speaker fell, um, I had some concerns. Uh, the fact that one speaker could fall, I had some concerns on uh, everything, everything that was overhead, any type of equipment or a fixture that was overhead, that I wanted to inspect um, the mounting systems or the, uh, the fastening systems. Um, so it, it, it was a long process. We hired a local uh, multidisciplinary engineer uh, that reviewed all the systems overhead. And uh, as as uh, we recognized uh, deficiencies, we handled them immediately. And we ranked them as uh, high risk, low risk, and medium risk. And uh, in most cases, uh, everything that we've uh, covered were in the low risk category. Um, there, there were a number of items that we felt that were in the medium risk that we dealt with immediately, uh, which was um, a lot of the smaller speakers that were mounted at the on the concourse levels uh, on the fascia. Um, we we looked at the um, the anchoring system; they were loose and they were uh, loose in the actual um, drilled holes. So we took immediate action, removed them, and replaced the um, the anchor system and remounted the uh, speakers. The score clock, uh, we noticed that there were 10 uh, bolts missing, and uh, we took immediate action on that as well. I mean, I chalked that up as, um, I mean, sloppy workmanship, and um, uh, I'm, I mean, I could call it cutting corners, but uh, overall, I think it was uh, sloppy workmanship, uh, but we took immediate action to, to correct uh, those problems.
0: You must be getting frustrated at this stuff, eh, Rom?
5: Well, <laughs> yeah, very, very frustrated, um, you know, myself and my staff that are there. Uh, I mean, every day we're operating that facility. It's a 365-day uh, um, facility, and uh, these things that come out of uh, left field are surprises to us, and uh, we need to react. And uh, when you get into a reactive mode, it's always tough to find solutions. And uh, definitely $145 million stadium, I mean, it, it is a great stadium, uh, the Ticats put on a great production on that stadium. Um, it's a great venue to have, uh, showcase any type of programming in there. Uh, but again, $145 million stadium and uh, these type of defects, it is frustrating, and it, it, sometimes it's very troubling to see.
0: Ultimately, who's responsible for this, Rom, and how do you how do you get it fixed? How do you take care of it, even at this date?
5: Well, I mean, right now um, we have a, a team of our project managers and the operation people at the stadium, and we're handling them directly. We're inventorying everything that's happening. We're putting uh, a cost associated to those uh, elements, and uh, we're going back after uh, Infrastructure Ontario and Ontario uh, Sports Solution as a latent defect or part of the defect list that we have uh, ongoing. So, are there? Yeah. Uh... Sorry.
0: Go ahead. I'm sorry. Sorry, go ahead. So, is there any other thing? Like you said, that this, uh, you know, you were you were concentrating on the overhead stuff when the speaker situation happened. Uh, you weren't really expecting a transformer to blow out on you and 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 leave you you know scrambling to find alternative measures and stuff. Uh, how confident are you in the stadium itself? As, you know, obviously you've got it secure; it's a safe place. But you know, stuff like the transformer and such, are you are you are you walking on eggshells?
5: Well, you know, I have honestly, I have a strong team that works out of that stadium, and uh, we've been developing uh, preventative maintenance programs on all the systems. So we've been uh, inventorying all the equipment that's there. So we do periodic checks. So I'm confident on that level that uh, we do have a strong and a robust uh, preventative maintenance program um, with the skilled trades that we have on site. Um, So I'm confident to that that matter. But you just never know what the next surprise will be with the stadium. I've had the speaker fall and I have this transformer fail on us. Um, so what's the next boogeyman that comes out? I have no idea, but I do have a strong team over there that are very reactive and have strong skill sets to uh, deal with these matters.
0: Yeah, good for you. Uh, So uh, what can you learn from this, Rom? I mean, you know, if we were to ever build another one, what would you take away from all this?
5: Um, The one thing I do take away from this is, and a lesson learned is uh, more control over the... uh, the project. Um, the city of Hamilton um, was really uh, a stakeholder in this project Damn. and we were benefactors of, of the stadium. Infrastructure Ontario and uh, Ontario Sports are really uh, the players that delivered the stadium through Toronto 2015 in the Pan Am Games and uh, we were benefactors of, of uh, the stadium at the end. Uh, what I take away is uh, a, a better control, more control in, in, in the process
0: uh, in the end of the day, Rom, are you satisfied? Are you? Are, are there still things that are eating at you that have to be done? Or for the most part, are we over the hump?
5: Um, for the most part, we're over the hump. Uh, like I said earlier, I think we have a great stadium. We have a great venue to uh, program. The Ticats put on a great production on, on that stadium. Um, so, I mean, anyone that comes in takes a look at the stadium and takes a look at uh, uh, the different views, the sidelines, We do have a great stadium. Um, So right now we are over the hump. I feel confident we're over the hump, but we do still have some challenges in in fixing some of the other deficiencies.
0: So moving forward with the transformer issue, you're waiting uh, to hear from them tonight to find out exactly what did happen. Any idea on a fix and and when it will be up and running and, and everything back to normal?
5: I'll have a better idea tomorrow. Tonight they're shutting it down for eight hours, Mm -hmm. and they're going to be doing a thorough inspection, comprehensive uh, investigation. And uh, um, I'm hoping to meet with everyone first thing tomorrow morning to determine uh, what the root cause of
0: uh, the failure was, and uh, we'll take it from there. All right, Ron. Well, thanks very much, and good luck to you and your crew. Great. Thank you very much, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.